David Branch was raised on a farm in rural Arkansas with eight siblings on his parents' meager income of $10,000 a year. The great-great-grandson of a slave from Africa who was committed to education, Branch pulled up his Arkansas roots to go to college in Dallas and then law school in Washington, D.C., confronting great adversity in the process. Very limited income on the farm, but I went to Southern Methodist University, and that's a very wealthy school in Dallas. So from a $10,000 family income to sitting next to millionaires and people who were driving Mercedes and <laughs> BMWs at campus, that was really difficult to adjust to. And just, you know, the whole mindset of people from that, from financial means such as that. Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. Today, Branch is a prominent employment attorney and head of the David Branch Law Firm. He has a deep commitment to giving back to his community and is passionate about fighting for clients who are confronting racism or other forms of discrimination, much like he did when he set off to get that education and create a life that would do his great-great-grandma proud. David, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you. You come from an extraordinary lineage, one of 600 descendants of the Branch family. Yes, that's correct. My great-great-grandmother, Victoria Wakefield, uh, was a slave um, in Florida first, and then she was later sold into slavery in Vicksburg, Mississippi. And from Vicksburg, Mississippi, after the Civil War, uh, she moved to Arkansas. And it's the part of Arkansas known, known as the Mississippi Delta. And my great-great-grandmother married a Civil War veteran. His name was Henry Wakefield. And after my um, Mr. Wakefield passed away, uh, my great-great-grandmother received Civil War pension benefits. And from the Civil War pension benefits, um, she saved enough money to send her eldest great-great-granddaughter to college, and this would have been in the late 1900s uh, through 1920. And that great-great-granddaughter was actually my aunt, (laughs) and my aunt actually moved back to our farming community, and she became the teacher and principal for school there. And she did it from the 1920s until the 1960s. (laughs) And um, she educated the entire family. And really, uh, that's where it all started. What's amazing is she became a teacher at age 18. And then a few years later, she became a principal. But when she was a teacher, at one point, she was teaching in one classroom that had eight different grades. So Mm -hmm. she was an extraordinary woman. Yes, just an incredible woman. And really... I spent a lot of time with my Aunt Annie and just loved to crack jokes, (laughs) tease all of her nieces and nephews, and really just made education fun. But she really stressed the importance of education. Now, tell me about your other family, your parents, uh, and where you grew up and, and what that life was like. You come from a very large family. Yes. So my grandmother was Louisa McGee Branch. And she was married to John Branch, my grandfather, and they had 10 kids. My father was the youngest of the 10 kids. His name was Will Bailey or Willie Branch. 
and um, I'm the youngest of nine kids. So life was very difficult on the farm. We had a small farm, and actually before um, before I was born, uh, my grandfather passed away at an early age. So my dad was responsible for maintaining the family farm when three of his older siblings went off to World War II. And my dad was 17 years old, and uh, he really saved the family farm because uh, in that era, if farms were not managed and not operated, uh, particularly farms owned by African-Americans, it was very common for people to just come in and take the land. So really, the running joke in our family has always been my dad saved us all from becoming sharecroppers because (laughs) had he not worked the land uh, while his brothers were away at war, uh, the land very likely would have been lost. Now, is it true that he learned to drive at age nine and would drive his father around the property? That was my uncle, one of my dad's brothers. One of my dad's brothers was Ezel Branch, and his uh, we called him Uncle Pete. His name was actually Pete Branch, but Uncle Pete served in the Navy during World War II. But uh, at nine years old, he was a family driver. <laughs> my grandfather had a heart condition, and so he didn't drive at all, but... Uh, My Uncle Pete was a family driver. Well, what it shows is the incredibly young age at which kids at the time used to take responsibility, Annie being a teacher at age 18 and and Pete driving at age nine and your dad taking on the farm at age 17. It's not like today where kids can hang around forever, you know, depending on their parents. Oh, no, no, we all worked. (laughs) It was very serious work ethic there. So that's really what's driven the family to a great deal of success. Now, it wasn't just you and your family on the farm, right? You also had your uncles on the farm. And how many cousins were in this one property? Okay, so my aunt lived next door, Aunt Annie, and she was older when I grew up, but she lived next door. She had 10 kids. And uh, my uncle Pete, he lived on the other side. He had 15 kids. And my uncle Wes or John Branch, uh, he actually had 17 kids. Two of them passed away when they were young, but he had 17 kids. So we, at any given time, there would be, you know, 40 kids or so, (laughs) plus cousins there at uh, any given time. And there was always a a kind of a running joke in the family when the local school bus would stop to stop on Branch Hill and was known as Branch Hill. It would be completely filled just with Branch kids. (laughs) And my grandmother was always there. Um, She lived on the hill as well. And she was there to greet the kids when they returned home from school. She didn't remember anyone's name. Everyone was sweet honey or sweet baby, but she greeted all the kids and we had to greet her as we got off the bus each day. I put this against the backdrop of history. It was no small feat to educate all of the, all of the kids of the branch family, given where we were at that time in our history. That's absolutely correct. And even before um, my generation, during my parents' generation, it occurred. In 1919, there was the massacre of African-American sharecroppers and farmers in Elaine, Arkansas. And um, that's only about two hours from my family farm. But of course, news of the uh, massacre spread throughout the local communities there, and it just terrorized African-American families, uh, causing a great deal of fear, a great deal of distrust, in uh, Caucasians, and um, 
just overall alarm and concern. And my father and his siblings grew up in the backdrop of that massacre. So there were family gatherings, I'm told, almost on a weekly basis where people would talk about this and the concerns there. So it was no small feat for um, people to get access to education. My dad only finished the eighth grade because he had to work on the farm. And but everyone else in the next generation, we all went to college. We got an opportunity to go to college. And the Elaine massacre, if you can describe it briefly. Yes, it, there was a dispute um, between uh, farmers who were attempting to organize a union. And uh, there was a meeting at a local church there and um, the police arrived. Um, there was some dispute and one of the officers was shot. And as a result, um, there was alarm in the Caucasian community and surrounding communities that there was some type of rebellion taking place. And um, about approximately 200 people were murdered, uh, African-American women, children, men, young, old, were just slaughtered over a couple of days. And the massacre also resulted in a landmark Supreme Court ruling uh, having to do with the due process rights of Yes, a number of the African-Americans were tried uh, and um, appealed to the Supreme Court. And it was, there was a finding that they had not been provided due process. So the, the verdicts were overturned eventually. And this was a very significant moment uh, in our history because for the first time in the court's dealings with African-American um, defendants, the court actually ruled in in favor of, of defendants' yes. rights to due process. Yes, yes, absolutely. So. so even beyond your father's generation, looking at your own family of 70 cousins or so, all going to college, that again was no small feat given that it happened against the backdrop of the civil rights movement and busing and all of those things. Yes. So I have approximately 70 first cousins, and uh, yeah, if you can imagine that. <laughs> and um, most of them went to school at the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. Previously, it was Arkansas at m and and it later became the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. Uh, but and our, all of our parents managed to send us to college. The alternative was working on a farm. <laughs> so there was some incentive to go to college. It was much easier to teach school or find other work other than work on the farm. So there was some incentive, but it still was not easy. Not a lot of resources, um, but a lot of support, a lot of faith, a lot of just general belief in being able to accomplish or do anything if you worked hard enough. And that came from my aunt Annie, who was very forceful as a principal. There was no alternative to <laughs> to getting your work. And my, my dad would often tell me, you know, it would be one thing if you didn't have it in you, but I know you have it in you and my job is to get it out of you. <laughs> so, and, and you went to, did you all go to integrated schools? I went to integrated schools. I, my first year of school was 1971. It was the first year that the local schools were integrated. My older siblings went to uh, segregated schools. As did all of your cousins. Yes, all of the cousins. So, But we have cousins at just about every, every other age. So I have two or three cousins who are the same age who were born within a couple of months of me. And that's true. So it was common in every 
class. There were three branches, <laughs> at least three branches in each class. So it was family all the way through yeah. from school through college. Yes, yes. And I know the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff takes great pride on having what a hundred branches graduate. Yes, yes. So, so you that, can imagine that. So I guess it's like a household name, right? <laughs> you just walk in there and everybody knows who you are. Well, most of the professors, you know, <laughs> do know who they are. I didn't go to the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, but uh, most of the professors are aware of the branches. So, Now, what convinced you to leave Arkansas and to kind of pull yourself from your roots and go to Dallas to go to college and then to D.C.? Okay, so I have two sisters. My older sister went to the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville uh, in the 1960s, if you can imagine that. She was 16 years old uh, in northwest Arkansas. I remember driving with my parents to the University of Arkansas to visit her, and we could actually see Klan cross burnings along the way. <laughs> so it was a, that's a very difficult part of Arkansas, but she finished there in three years and she moved to Dallas. And uh, I was very close to my older sister and my younger sister. And my older sister encouraged me to come to Texas and I decided to go to school at Dallas. Growing up, did you experience overt racism as you were going to school and and, uh, and dealing with all those things? Yes, absolutely. And I did not hear the word nigger until I got to school. It wasn't spoken in our house. It wasn't permitted in our uh, family surroundings. But um, when I got to school, that was one of the first things I heard a kid say to me, oh, you're a nigger. And, uh, but it didn't really bother me as much because we had such a strong sense of family and uh, my response was to just work hard in school and make the best grades and prove myself and prove that I deserve to be there. And I would not accept a label from someone. So, but we faced racism. We were, um, I mean, that's just one example. And what was it like going to college? Um, College was probably the most challenging point for me because my family had very limited means. We had a family farm. We raised the produce. We had farm animals. And my parents just did not make a lot of money. So very limited income on the farm. But I went to Southern Methodist University, and that's a very wealthy school in Dallas. So from a $10,000 family income to sitting next to millionaires and people who were driving Mercedes and <laughs> BMWs at campus, that was really difficult to adjust to. And just, you know, the whole mindset of people from that, from financial means such as that. And what were your greatest sort of moments of adversity? You, you talked to me earlier about sort of the sense of fear and inadequacy that you experienced, some of it going back to the stories from Elaine, I guess. Yes, some of it going back to the the Elaine massacre. Um, my, I really believe that in my uncles and my aunts and other older relatives, there was a sense of of fear and you know doubt that was kind of passed on to the kids. Um, and some of that was reinforced when I went to college. Um, just coming, I was a minority, a largely Caucasian population at college, uh, did not have the same resources or means uh, that these other folks had. So, I mean, those were some of the challenges. 
And then from uh, Dallas, you came to Washington, D.C., I guess, to go to law school? Yes, yes. I went to law school at Georgetown. Uh, and um, really, the first day, that I, first day that I arrived in Washington, D.C., I knew immediately that this was home. It just felt like home um, and just bonded with the community. And uh, I've been in Washington since then. Why did it feel like home, do you think? Um, primarily because of the different cultures, the quest for, um, I mean, it's the political center, but just the quest for just knowledge here. I mean, I felt really comfortable that I would be able to be judged based on how I performed and um, how hard I was willing to work and not be judged based on color. And what did you do after you graduated from law school? So after law school, I clerked for a judge in the local courts, and then I was a staff attorney for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. And um, I was there at the time when Clarence Thomas was being elevated to the Supreme Court, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on the court as well. What was that like? It was great. It really was. And she, particularly Judge Ginsburg, uh, Justice Ginsburg, uh, she was known to meet with the staff attorneys and, you know, give them comments or notes on what she thought about a memo or written work product and, you know, pass along tips for improving English skills. (laughs) So uh, she actually wrote a note to me for one of the briefs that I submitted to her just saying, David, you did a great job on this. And so uh, have that framed at home. <laughs> After you uh, finished your clerkship or your staff attorney uh, position, you began practicing employment law. That's correct. And where did you do that? Did you set up your own firm right away? or I worked with a local f- small firm for a couple of years, and then I started my own firm. And why did you choose employment law? Well, I decided to go to law school when I was maybe about 14 or 15. I have two sisters. One sister moved to Texas. The other sister is actually a doctor. So I'm very close to her. And every week we would watch, there were two shows that we did not miss. One was Marcus Welby, MD, (laughs) and the other was Owen Marshall. Owen Marshall was a lawyer (laughs) in the 70s TV show. And um, just knew right away that I wanted to be in a field where I was helping people and making a difference and um, always pursued that, uh, whether it was helping working with kids or helping adults deal with issues, particularly something as important as maintaining employment and not being discriminated against or treated differently. Did some of that go back to your own roots when you experienced that kind of discrimination and racism? Yes, absolutely. Always feeling as though I wanted to be treated fairly and judged based on my character and based on my intellect as opposed to my race or some other distinguishing quality. And, and how, what would you say about the level of discrimination that exists in, in the workplace today, including in federal government agencies? There is still a great level of discrimination in the workplace. Um, what we see now is efforts to disguise discrimination. Um, people aren't going to come out and say, you're terminated because you're black or because you're gay or because you know, you're Jewish or whatever. But there are ways that you can make life very difficult for people 
um, and cause them to make a decision to end their employment. Uh, we had a case recently where we represented uh, employees, deaf employees at the National Security Agency, the NSA. Um, the agency was not providing interpreting services. The agency made a decision that rather than you know deal with these folks and provide interpreting services as the law requires, uh, they would um, provide interpreting services when they were available or um, offer different reasons why they could not provide interpreting services. Unfortunately, we had an EEOC judge uh, rule that this was against the law and you were permitting, uh, preventing these employees from being able to perform their job by providing a reasonable accommodation for them. And what other patterns of discrimination do you see? I mean, is there a lot of sexual harassment still, uh, discrimination on the basis of sex? What's it like, especially in the wake of the Me Too movement? We, we do see some sexual harassment, but it's not as you know severe. Uh, we do have a couple of cases of sexual harassment uh, in the courts now, uh, but it's not as severe as before, at least in my opinion. Folks are less likely to you know, engage in sexual harassment in the workplace, but there's a lot of retaliation that takes place when people complain about discrimination or complain about not being selected for a position or not being treated the same as other employees. Are you surprised by the amount of discrimination you're seeing now, or do you believe that it's a lot less than it used to be in general? I think that it's less, uh, but there's still a great deal. <laughs> and uh, we have a number of cases where people have either been terminated or denied opportunities because of protected class. Now, you uh, had a family reunion in 2012 where the whole family came together. How many members were there? I guess it was in Washington, D.C.? It was in Washington, D.C. We had about 300 family members who attended. So that was a great accomplishment from migrating from Arkansas to uh, to Washington, D.C. for most of them. And, and were you there uh, to honor some members of the family? What was the purpose of the, the reunion? We actually have a family reunion every two years. So we honor the course, the legacy of uh, my great-great-grandmother, as well as um, my aunts and uncles and others who helped shape and form the family. So, And it was interesting. You got letters from President Obama and members of Congress uh, sort of talking about the importance of, of your family. Yeah, absolutely. And not only did we get letters from President Obama, we made a visit to the White House as soon as we entered the White House, they closed the security doors. A helicopter swoops down. President Obama pops out, and he, the family actually got to meet him. So I don't know how that happened, but it actually happened. So, What was that like? Oh, just incredible. People are still talking about it. <laughs> That's wonderful. Now, you are um, not just a prominent uh, employment attorney in the Washington area, but you've spent a lot of your career also giving back to the community Tell me a little bit about what drives that and the kinds of work that you're doing as a way of giving back. What drives it is it's in my DNA. I mean, that's all I can say. There's something inside of me that says if there's a problem, if there's an issue, I'm drawn to it. And I try to address issues or problems, uh, particularly when it comes to, you know, kids who are underserved or in underserved areas or foreigners or people who are um, um, elderly. So I focused on 
really working with kids. Uh, we sponsor um, a program called Blessings in a Backpack, where we provide financial assistance to kids uh, who otherwise would not have food to eat over weekends and holidays. Um, I sponsor a holiday angel tree project for a youth center for about 50 kids in Southeast DC. We usually do it every year. And uh, basically we get local businesses to donate pizza and we have a party for them and we get folks um, to donate gifts um, to the kids. And we do celebration there every year. We also support a local school in Southeast DC, uh, Stanton Elementary School, and basically everything that they do there, whether it's um, fall festival or last year we did a holiday gala where we invited the administrators and teachers uh, to a party and we purchased gifts for the kids uh, there. And um, so that's those are some of the uh, service options, service opportunities for us. And you also do international work? Yes, I support um, mission work and I've supported mission work in Haiti in the past. We uh, purchased um, gowns for high school graduating class in Haiti. Uh, one of my cousins was actually uh, took a leave of absence from a, as a job as a teacher in Arkansas, and she spent a year in Haiti. And they got to the end of the year and they wanted, of course, it was time for graduation. They didn't have gowns. So we purchased gowns for the entire graduating class, um, as well as uh, mission work in Cuba. Um, this particularly this past year, many of the uh, families, we supported a, a church there, United Methodist Church there, in an effort to purchase 30 washing machines for for Cubans. So, and we actually did that. We purchased 30 washing machines. People were washing their clothes on rocks or in rivers and streams. And so um, we purchased 30 washing machines and they all have washing machines now. So I do that as well as, um, Guatemala and Honduras, uh, supporting missionaries who've gone done mission work there. And you, you, some of your work has also been written up in the American Bar Association Journal. Yes, I was featured in the American Bar Association Journal for work with a, a home here in D.C. Um, where uh, kids who were born addicted to crack and cocaine and who were abandoned um, I supported the, the house there, basically was became the dad of the house, going in, helping with the kids, uh, feeding them, making sure that they had an opportunity to interact with a male. Everyone else on staff was female, so did that for about a year and was featured in the ABA Journal for that. Looking back at that young man growing up on, on a farm in Arkansas and who you are today, do you have any thoughts on sort of all of the adversity you confronted and who you are today and, and what made you that person? Well, what I can say is, of course, adversity is never great while you're experiencing it, but it helps shape you. And the most important point for me was finding my voice. A lot of times adversity causes you to lose your voice or to silence you because you're dealing with all these issues and you really sometimes forget who you are and you have to be reminded of who you are and really finding your voice. And for me, it was not only finding my voice, but taking my mantle as well. I really believe my great, great grandmother left a mantle of, you know, hard work, focus on education, giving back, pouring yourself out completely uh, to everyone within your sphere of influence. 
And looking back, do you remember a moment in time when you found that voice and found your mantle? I'm still finding, <laughs> I, I found the voice and the mantle, but I'm still growing into it. So really, um, it started at an early age. I knew that there was something different that I really wanted to give back. And I just found ways to do that in college. And even in law school, we supported uh, homeless kids um, through a project called Project North Star, where we actually tutored homeless kids. Classmates would um, leave law school and go out and tutor homeless kids. Um, and it's just continued from that point on. Um, and do you believe that is your voice, the voice of someone giving back? Yes, not only just, not only the voice of someone giving back, but really building bridges, really helping people see that they're valued or they're important, particularly, you know, young kids in underserved communities. I also lead a Bible study group for one of the um, rehabilitation centers here in Washington, D.C. So on once a month, on Saturdays, we go in and just lead a, a church service, basically, for people who are in wheelchairs um, and otherwise would not be able to attend church service. So that's part of it. That's one example. And uh, that's just who I am. That's just part of life for me. And if you were sitting across the table here from your great-great-grandmother, Victoria Wakefield, what would you say to her about her legacy? What I would say to her is just, just thank you for sowing the seed. It's made all the difference in the world for me and 70 first cousins and 500 descendants. Of course, she had no idea what she was doing. You know, she was just probably doing what she thought would give someone an opportunity. But just by playing that, planting that one seed, um, it made all the difference in the world for my life as well as the life, lives of all of my cousins and all the people we've been able to touch as a result of um, giving and committing ourselves to our community. And I will say that not only do I believe I'm here to build bridges, I really think that's important for the country. There's a lot of reconciliation that needs to, to take place. I mentioned to you previously that we had a large gala last year at my home. Um, and before the gala in the fall part of the year, I was driving to work, my phone charged down, my car stopped. So I got out and started walking and an elderly white gentleman stopped and said, hey, you want a ride? Get in. And the guy's name was uh, was Cliff. And so Cliff and I bonded right away. I'm a 50-year-old African-American. He's retired, 80-year-old uh, Caucasian male. So we exchanged emails. Uh, he came to the holiday party and we've just developed a relationship. We really have to find ways to find things that we have in common with folks and begin, begin the healing process for this country. And that's going to require us to really just um, become more humble and um, agree, try to find common ground on things that we can agree on and build on those things. Wonderful. David, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. David Branch is an attorney in Washington, D.C. He heads the David Branch Law Firm and specializes in employment discrimination issues, especially in the federal government. David is a descendant of the incredible Branch family whose lineage is almost 600 members strong. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. 
And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.